Hey, it's Martine. Okay, I know that y'all have heard me say this so many times in the past week, but we are in the last days of the Webby Awards. Post Reports is still trying to come out on top. We are so, 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 so close to winning, and it's a huge deal if we do. So picture the Bernie Sanders meme, the one where he's out in the cold asking for donations. I am once again asking for your vote in the Webbies. We'll put the link of where you go to vote in today's episode description on your podcast app and in today's episode page at postreports.com. And if you've already voted, share it with a friend or family member and ask them to vote too. Thank you so much for your support. And here's today's show. Good morning, everyone from the flight deck. It's great to see your smiling faces this morning. My name is Kevin. I'll be your captain today on flight 2289, service over to the nation's capital. For a lot of folks traveling by plane today, the message coming from the cockpit is suddenly very different. There's a lot of uh, excitement today about the uh, Delta announcing that we're no longer going to enforce the mask mandate. That's great for a lot of us. I know uh, some of us are a little bit more hesitant to go maskless. So either way, whether you go maskless or you continue to uh, wear your mask, we're just glad to have you on board today. Once we get pushed back off the gate here, one hour and 52 minutes of flight time. Try to find a smooth ride and get that seatbelt signed. As of Monday evening, passengers on planes and in airports in the U.S. are no longer required to wear masks. This is because a judge in Florida struck down the federal mask requirement on airplanes, trains, and other public transportation. So within hours, TSA stopped enforcing the mask mandate. Then the four major U.S. airlines all announced, well, we're not going to enforce it either. And in some cases, that announcement came in the middle of flights on Monday night. We just got an announcement a few minutes ago. Some of you may have seen the press release today that a judge overturned the mask mandate. With some passengers cheering as they snatched off their masks and waved them around in the air. And other passengers worried and fearful, thinking, hey, I did not sign up for being stuck on a crowded plane with a bunch of potentially unvaccinated strangers not wearing masks. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 19th. Today, we're talking to transportation reporter Mike Laris about the end of the aviation mask mandate, whether it's permanent and what you can expect if you're getting on a plane soon. Then later in the show, I hear from one of our health reporters about a new strategy in trying to track the spread of COVID. And I will just come out and say it. This story is about poop. It's a down and dirty on how sewage sounds the alarm on coronavirus. Stay tuned. So, Mike, how did it end up that this mask mandate on planes was lifted so suddenly on Monday, like where people were still in the middle of flights? People have been fighting about masks in the air for more than a year, and suddenly It was done. And what happened was a federal judge in Florida found a series of of legal reasons that she thought should end this mandate. And the judge's ruling came out earlier in the day, and it took several hours for people to figure out what impact that, you know, this was going to have. And some people were literally flying in the air when they found out about it. We spent a good amount of the day yesterday trying to 
to figure things out. But a judge was pretty clear. She found that this mandate, which has been in place for you know more than a year, could no longer stand. And that, that led to all sorts of implications. Do you have any insights into her rationale or, or what she said about why this mask mandate she felt needed to be struck down? Yeah, it was pretty interesting reading. She cited a 1944 law that allows <laughs> um, the CDC to do its work. And she said that the CDC exceeded its authority. But her, her reasoning there is quite interesting. She focused on one word, and that word was sanitation. So the, mm. the CDC said it sort of in the service of that word of sanitation, it was imposing this mask order. And she went on to, you know, in her analysis, say that wearing a mask did not count in her book as sanitation. It's an interesting dispute and it's a, it seems to be a, a sort of a small thing, but it's the crux of her decision. The Justice Department, in arguing to keep this mandate um, in a filing last month, said very clearly, hey, you know, Congress gave us back in the 40s the power to try to stop diseases from traveling around the country through sanitation and other measures. And they said certainly this mask order would fall under one of those two. So they sought to, to defend this mandate, but judge in Florida had this logic and, and then she struck down the, the mandate. I found it interesting too, just as, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it was pretty interesting that a federal judge in one state could have that kind of impact on mm-hmm. a mandate across the country. I've seen, um, I mean, it did sort of shake people up that that's the way things worked in this case. And I've seen a lot of outrage about this decision because the judge in this case, she is a Trump appointee. People have pointed out she's very conservative. She has been deemed not qualified by the American Bar Association. But but also I think that there's a lot of outrage about this moment, right? Like where we are in the pandemic and whether this is the right time to lift this mandate. So can you talk a little bit about why there's so much concern about stopping the mask mandate right now? Yeah, I think the... The fight over masks on airplanes has just been symbolic in so many ways. It represents the questions over public health measures and the questions of personal freedom that have been fought over in many different contexts. But I think in the air in particular, it just gets so heated and has been so political. There was a recent survey that found sort of roughly half of Americans thought that the mandate should be extended and half of folks thought it it should just be allowed to expire. And I think even the administration has been wrestling with mm. that clear division in the country. They had extended the mask mandate for, you know, just a couple more weeks until next month. There was still a sense uh, it was certainly not a done deal, but there was a sense that the administration might try to find a way to walk away from that that mandate. the The idea was, hey, let's take a look at these new variants. let's let's see how things are going, and we'll weigh this again next month. And then this decision kind of comes sweeping in. There's no more discussion. it's It's just at least for this moment, it's finished. And that sort of cut through. But debate, I think, that was was still ongoing, which is mm-hmm. how long should certain public health measures stay in place, especially when in cities across the country and school districts across the country, mask mandates have 
been canceled and sort of why should they be ongoing in, in the air was a question that was being actively debated. That's interesting. So is it possible that this decision will be overturned or is the administration thinking about fighting it to be able to keep the, the mandate in place longer? What's pretty interesting, I've talked to people in the in the industry and tried to get some insights from people in the federal government. So far, there's no clear word about whether the decision will be appealed. But one of the interesting things now, and a flight attendant was telling me this earlier today, which is sort of once the genie's out of the bottle, it's going to be hard to put it back in the bottle. What she told me was that the you know if the administration wants to to fight this in court to appeal this decision, they indeed may do so if that's where they're heading. But that might be just to protect you know the administration's ability to to hmm. impose these kind of mandates in in the future. I think that's really a big issue here. Is you had this decision that really sort of eviscerated this CDC's ability to do some very basic public health measures. And there, there's concern mm-hmm. out there now that like, even if the administration wanted to let the mass mandate go, is it prudent to leave a decision like that on the books that, that so hamstrings the CDC? Interesting. So, so the government might still fight this only to retain the right to be able to put mandates like this in place, if not to actually return to requiring people to wear masks on planes, you know, starting a week from now. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm hearing from people in industry. Obviously, the federal government's going to decide what it's going to do on on that front on their own. But but that's really an interesting concern. And another thing that, that is related to that, you know, in terms of flight attendants, you know, there is a sense of relief um, mm. here for some flight attendants because they've been asked throughout the course of the pandemic to tell, as one one person told me, tell grown adults to do something that they had agreed to do, which was to mm. wear a mask on an airplane. And they've had to be sort of constantly telling people, hey, you agreed to do this. You know, initially it was an airline rule, then it became a a federal government rule, you've agreed to wear a mask and people wouldn't do it. They would find all sorts of ways to get around it. And one government report I looked at, people would take out a bag of popcorn and eat kernel after kernel for the entire flight just so they could wiggle around the rules because you're allowed to eat with your mask down. So there was all sorts of, and that was sort of a little bit of gamesmanship, but there was also just, you know, hostility. There were verbal attacks. People were spit on. People were actually physically assaulted. So there's this sense that flight attendants have have put up with a lot of this. They have a sense of relief that mm-hmm. that's not one of their jobs anymore. Their primary job is keeping people safe in the air. At the same time, you have flight attendants with kids that are, you know, younger than five years old who can't be vaccinated and who are concerned about flying around on a plane with unmasked people. There's a sense that a lot of flight attendants are going to continue to stay masked. They know their workplace. They know what it's like to fly, and they have a sense of the risks, and a lot of them are going to keep their masks on. Well, well, I want to ask more about those risks, because I remember earlier in the pandemic, there was so much conversation around how safe or risky is it to be on a plane right now with COVID everywhere. And I heard discussion about things like airflow on the plane and ventilation, and that, in fact, because of the circulation of air on planes, it's not actually that risky. Um, What is our sense now of actually how big the transmission risks are on planes and whether people should really be concerned about getting on a plane with unvaccinated people, especially 
especially if they are vulnerable or have vulnerable people in their lives. Yeah, I mean, experts in cabin air say that the ventilation is very good, but they say that it also makes a big difference when masks are used. So the idea is that that airplanes have very high-grade filters, but it takes a while for the air to be sucked out of the cabin and through those filters. So in that time when it leaves my mouth and before it gets filtered, it sort of floats around in the cabin for a couple minutes. And there is some risk there is what, you know, experts in in cabin air have have told me. The airlines themselves paid for research, you know, showing that planes are indeed incredibly safe, but that same research said that a, a critical element of that safe picture is the use of masks. So mm-hmm. what will happen um, next is is going to be interesting. We've, we've talked to epidemiologists that say some of the, the variants that can transfer more easily, they don't know how that fits into the previous picture of research in air on planes. And so that, at least in the minds of some epidemiologists, is an open question. Mike, I don't know if you had this reaction, but it was really, I would say, surprising, shocking for me to see some of these videos of what it was like on planes as this announcement was made and people cheering and celebrating and clapping. And, you know, I I think it just speaks to how much Americans have such dramatically different feelings about masks right now and their own sense of safety and risks. And I also heard from one of our colleagues, Dan Simmons, who went out to uh, Chicago O'Hare today to talk to travelers about what they were thinking. And I was really surprised at how chill a lot of people seemed about it. Um, And you still feel safe flying, even though people aren't going to be masked? Yeah. I guess, yeah. Uh, some people will not be wearing masks. It's not mandatory anymore, right? Right. Yeah, okay. Well, it's up to them. I've, I'll be wearing my mask. Dropping the mask. Uh, mandate. I'm masking. very, very, uh, I feel really good about it because I also have sleep apnea and wearing a mask is kind of like having someone's hand on your face and you can't breathe. So, yeah, I'm, I feel good about it. Sure. And what about... Um, what about if someone on the flight said, look, look, everyone, like, you know, I, I have this condition where I'm susceptible to getting COVID bad. Like, would you mind masking up? And you had a mask, would you put one on? Sure. Yeah. I'd consider it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but not, they're not going to tell me to wear it because of their condition. You know, if they ask me, hey, yeah, I got, you know, I have this, would you mind? I'm like, sure, I could do it for you. It's only an hour flight. Yeah. I could endure that. Uh-huh. I mean, if it was me, I'd. I would hope that they would respect my decision. But, you know, nowadays, you just never know. Sure. I'm just um, going with the flow. I go with the flow. Um, and I'm used to being told by the government, you got to do this, you got to do that, or in the city or state, whatever. And ain't nothing you can do about it. You got to go. Sure. Got to sure. do it. Sure. sure. So, Mike, in terms of what you heard in that tape... Do you feel like that squares with what you've been hearing from travelers and people who are thinking about flying, about how they're feeling about potentially being on a plane with people who are unmasked or going unmasked themselves? You know, the the interesting thing listening to that is the word respect. 
I think so much of this has to do with whether people are going to be kind to their neighbors on the plane. It sounds like a kindergarten message, but it's a pretty basic and important one, which is if somebody needs help, if they make a kind request, I would love to think that people would respect that and try to help them. I think what, what I've seen and heard and understand about this is that a lot of the politics that drive things on the ground just seep their way into the airplane cabin. But also there is an opportunity for, for kindness there. And if, and if people sort of turn down, down the heat and now there's nobody telling them they have to do something, mm-hmm. it would be great if, if people could be respectful of each other and might find a way to, to turn this into something that's, that's not this just constant haranguing of one another. Michael Laris is a transportation reporter for The Post. And new word from today, Uber is also ending its mask requirements for all riders and drivers in the U.S. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff and me. Ted Muldoon contributed reporting from Minneapolis and Dan Simmons reported from Chicago O'Hare. After the break, why more public health officials are turning to a different approach in testing for COVID. I'm going to count how many times we can use the word poop in this interview. We'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So, Lena, the thing that really stuck out to me about this story was that, so the name of the story in our system was Virus Poop. And that is not the kind of name for a story that you hear so often. What does that mean? Well, it means that it was a modified version of the slug that I really wanted to use, which I don't believe I can say on this Washington Post Reports (laughs) podcast. But you can think of it. It starts with S and ends in T. That is Lena Sun, a national health reporter for The Post. And of course, when we saw that internal name for her story, Virus Poop, we had to know more. So it turns out that this is not just some silly story about poop. This is a story about wastewater surveillance and the future of fighting the coronavirus pandemic. And it's also a little bit about poop. Right now, we're at this point in the pandemic where people really want to know where the virus is headed and what it means for us and how to track it. Because if we know where the virus is, if we know where cases are, we have a better sense of what will happen to us. Right now, though, lots of people get infected but not have symptoms. They may not even know it. 
And what wastewater surveillance does, if you are infected, you will shed tiny pieces of the virus in your poop. Basically, all you need for this surveillance system is a toilet and a public sewage system. And what it can do is it can capture the presence of the virus in the wastewater and it can detect when those levels are going up. So if virus levels are rising, it means more people are infected and therefore you might see more cases coming down the pike. How many people do you know who rapid test at home never bother reporting the results? Raise your hand. Ah, so many of you. And that is telling you that the data on testing is not really reliable and it's not very frequent. It doesn't get reported to the authorities. When you see official case counts and official test positivities, those are no longer as reliable. But everybody uses the toilet and that is a more reliable way to know what is going on with this wily virus. And so how many like cities or municipalities are kind of turning to this as their go to method of being able to actually understand what is going on with uh, the spread of COVID in their area? It's a system that was set up by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the fall of 2020, but it doesn't cover the entire country by any means. It covers only about one third of the U.S. population, about 100 million people. And even though many states may be participating in this, they may only have one or two sites actually monitoring it, right? So if you're in around an urban area, that's probably going to see more cases than someplace that's more rural. And it doesn't really reach those people who are on septic tanks. I've been told that about 80% of the U.S. is on public sewer systems and it can be used. But it's not as easy as just flipping a switch or dipping a cotton swab into the sample of wastewater. Well, I was going to ask, like, how it works. I mean, does someone just kind of go down into the place where all our poop goes and just fills up a cup and then test that? Or Right now, our wastewater treatment plants already collect sewer water and test for a whole bunch of stuff, you know, for all this regulatory stuff, right? And so what they do is they sample water over a 24-hour period because that gives you a much more representative sample of the stuff that's collected. So they collect the samples and depending on the system that's being used either in the state or the county or wherever, that might be collected once or a couple times a week. And then it's taken to a lab. They basically concentrate the solid material and then extract the genetic material of the virus and look for the coronavirus. And they can look for variants, but they have to know what the sequence is of the variants to know what to look for. So it's a way to show the presence of SARS-CoV-2, and you can go and look for particular variants if you know what the sequence is. But it's not going to be something where you're collecting the wastewater and all of a sudden, eureka, you discover a new variant. Depending on the process, it takes like a couple days. It's pretty fast. When you see it there, it's there. And and what are the ways in which this kind of wastewater testing has been able to help people respond to new variants or new surges in ways that are faster or different than if they were just looking at the number of cases that were like reported to the city or that came up at the hospital or whatever. 
Well, I think people are saying that this should not be the only thing that you rely on, but it is confirmatory information. So if you're seeing this in the wastewater and then you start to see cases go up as well, then you know that what you're seeing is it's not just noise, it's a real signal of something. And in the places where they've been doing it independently or before the CDC system came online, they have used it as a way to say, hmm, we have got something going on in this neighborhood. Let's send a mobile team to do testing, to test people, or let's send a mobile team to do a vaccination clinic. Or if we think that we're seeing rises steadily and consistently over several weeks, as they have in Maine, The main officials have told their main hospital systems, hey, we could be seeing more cases. And if we see more cases and if they're bad, we're going to need hospital beds. So they've put them on alert. In other places, they have taken the data when there's little detection and people have used that as a way to give factual information to people who are reluctant to get vaccines. I was talking to a Missouri OBGYN who told me that he showed charts of the surveillance of wastewater, of the levels of virus in the wastewater to his pregnant patients and convinced them, hey, you know what? This thing is here and look, it's going up. Yeah, now is the time to be careful. And now's the time to be careful. Why don't want your baby to be born with any kind of birth defects. Can you tell me about any of the conversations you've had with officials in those areas who have been encouraged by the success that they've had with using this by using poop? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the most interesting conversation I've had with officials in Tempe, Arizona, where they were using wastewater surveillance even before the pandemic. They were using it to monitor opioid use because they were noticing that people were not, because of the stigma, they weren't calling in overdoses or whatever. And so they were they use this to be able to send EMS teams to neighborhoods and, you know, help people. Then they pivoted to using this to spot hotspots in their city for COVID. And they would send teams and they noticed that in one area in downtown, there was a big spike in the levels of virus. And they sent in their EMS teams to set up uh, mobile testing clinics. They were able to put flyers in the laundromats and other places because this was a place where a lot of generations were living in the same household. And they wanted to be able to tell people, if you get sick, this is how you can stay away and quarantine from others safely. And they've become quite progressive in using this system to plan for other ways to track disease, such as norovirus or antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Or my favorite is they want to use this to track where people who have respiratory issues are living and having difficulty breathing. If you use an asthma inhaler, you produce something called albuterol in your waste. That goes into the wastewater, and they want to be able to use those places, like those neighborhoods, and plant more trees. If you plant more trees, you get more shade and you get better quality, and it is a good thing. And they have even gotten money. They already have been funded to do that. I I love the idea that your poop, that everybody's poop together can create this like pretty detailed picture of demographics and kind of like the public health issues and neighborhoods and that you can really like 
shape policy off of what people are finding in your poop. Yes. And, you know, poop has been a surveillance tool for other diseases. It's really being used now for the COVIDs. And that's sort of a, a bit of a paradigm shift for it because it's a respiratory disease. But poop surveillance has been used for decades to fight polio because polio is something that is shed in poop. It's an oral fecal transmission. And other countries have used wastewater surveillance for decades. So let me ask, like, if this is working so well and this seems like the tactic that public health officials are turning to to be able to get a better sense of where surges are happening and what's going on with COVID at any particular moment, why aren't more places using it? Like, what are the challenges or obstacles that has meant that this isn't the thing that just happens everywhere? Because anything in the United States, as you know, in our patchwork health system is not easy. A lot of the state health departments are really tired and they don't have the bandwidth to put this in place. Even though there is federal funding for this, you need to get equipment, you need to get training, you need to coordinate with the wastewater people. There's a lot of bureaucratic stuff that has to happen and it has to all fit together. The frustration that I'm hearing most from places that have not signed on to do this is they're not exactly sure what action they can take once they get this information. And Zinc, the chief medical officer in Alaska, where they have mostly septic systems, so they're rural and so they don't have a lot of sewer systems, said if 100 people come into a hospital and get tested PCR for the COVIDs, She can then know who's positive, who needs to be prescribed Paxlovid, which is an antiviral. And um, she can write Joe Blow a script so she can take action. But if there are rising wastewater levels, what is she supposed to do with that information? What is the action she should take? And right now, there is not a threshold, a uniform or standard threshold where Officials can say, if you see, you know, X thousand copies of the virus per liter, you should do this, this and this. They can't do that because every system is different. In Los Angeles, one system um, serves all of L.A. County. But in Houston, there are 39 different wastewater treatment plants. So each one of them is calibrated differently. Then if you think of, think about your poop and how far your poop has to travel in a system where maybe the pipes take a long time to get from your house over to the main treatment center. That's going to affect the concentration if there's a heavy rainfall, if there are a lot of tourists who come to Washington for cherry blossoms. It's all going to affect the concentration and level. So it's, it's, it's you know, just like everything in public health, it's complicated. Lena, thank you so much. This was very insightful, and I'm glad that we got to say poop so many times. Yeah, it was a not-so-shitty story, right? (laughs) (laughs) Lena Sun is a national health reporter for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky and edited by Maggie Penman. And don't forget to vote for us in the Webbies. Find the link to do that in the episode description in your podcast app or on today's episode page at postreports.com. 
I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.